Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. With everything that's going on this week in Washington, where Kevin McCarthy was unseated as the House Speaker, I thought I would share this vintage episode recorded eight years ago with Nancy Pelosi, the most influential and skillful speaker of our times. It was a masterclass on politics, power, and how to employ it. Here's that conversation. I'm here with Nancy Pelosi, the, uh, the Democratic leader of the House, former speaker, who I had the pleasure to work with in my two years uh, in Washington. Um, leader, I, um, I'm a city guy. I grew up in New York City. I came to Chicago in the early 70s. I love urban politics. I mostly did mayor's races for years and years and years. So Rahm used to say, Rahm Emanuel, people think she's a Pelosi, but really she's a D'Alessandro. <laughs> and it's important to know that. <laughs> Tell me about growing up in Baltimore in a political family. Your dad was the mayor. Your brother was the mayor. Mm-hmm. Tell me what that was like. Well, when I was born, my father was in Congress uh, from Baltimore. And uh, when I was seven years old, uh, in first grade, uh, he became the mayor of Baltimore. And so when I went away to college, he was still the mayor of Baltimore. It was the only life we really knew as a, you know, as a toddler or even my first memories, of course, were his, his going off to Washington. And I remember my first visit to the Capitol as a little girl with my five older brothers. It's always been about public service, really not about politics, but public service. The, uh, we always had this sense of responsibility to other people. And we lived in uh, Little Italy in Baltimore, Maryland. We always lived there. And people thought when he became mayor, he'd move someplace else. But that was really home for us. So since I was a little girl, I could, um, people would knock on the door or call. And I could remember what my mother would say. And uh, um, I could tell people who to call to get a bed in city hospital, uh, go on welfare, get a place to live in the projects. I mean, it was just part of what we Did you go you know, around with your dad when he was making his rounds as mayor? Well, if, if I, I did, but we were six of us. There were five, there were seven, seven kids, six boys, one girl. One of the boys died as a little boy. So I was raised five boys. I was a little girl. So um, people would say, don't invite Tommy, Del- the D'Alessandros, because you'll get seven of them. They travel <laughs> as a family. <laughs> but yeah, I would see... I would go to some things like weddings or something like that, and the um, the really the community came to our door. They came to our door, and it was always about our responsibility to other people. Uh-huh. And what did you learn about politics itself? I mean, it had to be word <laughs> politics is a tough politics. It's 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 not genteel politics. <laughs> people think of you as a uh, effete liberal from San Francisco. They do. Well, some Ifeet. people do. 
Some people do. Some people do. Not me. (laughs) But people who don't know you (laughs) think of you. But that's a pretty gritty politics, ward politics, uh, real politics. Mostly I learned how to count. Uh, That is really what has served me in good stead, whether it's about my own election or my election to leadership or my passing legislation. You really have to know how to count and what is a yes and what is that would be nice Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that's not a yes. And so I would would tell, see them come like before an election, people would sit around the table with yellow uh, legal pads and say, okay, in order to win, we need, say, for example, 100,000 votes. We need to have 20,000 from here. We need 15,000 from there. So everybody would have their allotment that they had to meet, at least, perhaps surpass. And so it, it was It was about the numbers, always. Of course, it was about the policy, and it was about right. uh, fighting for people, but you have to win in order to do that. And so it was always about... And yes meant yes. If people gave you a yes, you expected them to keep their... Oh, yeah. Well, that was about your word. You don't say yes and go no more than one time. And what uh, and what happened when people <laughs> said no? Well, no, they didn't. They didn't. I remember when uh, my brother tells a story who later became mayor, and he um, he tells a story of uh, when my father rats. My father, he was the first Catholic mayor of Baltimore, of course, the first Italian American, but he leapfrogged even over the Irish, which they couldn't get over. But Maryland's a Catholic state, but they never had a Catholic mayor of Baltimore. It's always more in the, shall we say, wasp variety of mayors. And um, so when he ran, it was really something quite remarkable. Yeah, and so uh, Tommy said that they just worked it so hard, and they um, he was a teenager. He said the night, like the night before the election, well, in the middle of the night, they went to the roof of our house and uh, to see if the cars were coming. You know, all the cars would come to the headquarters to pick up all their materials for getting out the vote. And he went to the top and he said, it was just like cars coming from every place, five o'clock in the morning. And he said, we're going to win, Dad. He said, we're going to give him a run. (laughs) It was all about grassroots, all about get out the vote, knocking on doors. I read somewhere, all cities are ethnic sort of melting pots. I read somewhere that your dad spoke Yiddish. Yeah, yeah. Well, when he was a boy, he was a Shabbat Goy, Shabbat Goy or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it means they go light the fire on a holiday or something. Mm -hmm. Holy Day, and um, so he spoke Yiddish. Yeah, he was quite a showman. He was really an orator, and he he probably spoke more Yiddish than he spoke Italian because his mother <laughs> was born in Baltimore. His mother was born in Baltimore, so it wasn't you know a speak Italian at home kind of situation. But he um, he was a showman. Yeah, and he loved speaking. Yiddish. And and was he? And he worked the different ethnic neighborhoods of the city. Oh yeah, had those kinds of yes wakes and yeah and, bar and, and yeah. Well, I was a little girl. I would go to black wakes, yeah, with him weddings, mm-hmm. and black it, cotillions. So how how does all this experience help you now? I mean, well, what, the, what, how does it? You, you obviously have a very diverse caucus, right. the most diverse in history. We have over fifty percent in our caucus are women, minorities, or LGBT. 
Isn't that exciting? And that is reflected at the in our chairman, our ranking members. You also have people from different communities, different interests, different backgrounds. You've got to knit them together. Well, knit is a good word, but I consider myself a weaver. Mm-hmm. I'm not, it's a, uh, uh, I feel like I'm at a loom, and every one of these threads is powerful. It's, it's, it brings its own conviction, dedication, hard work, priorities, wherever they are on the political spectrum, geographic, div- generational, gender diversity, but every one is a very strong thread. So I'm always weaving it together into a fabric that will be really strong. So we may not always have unanimity, but we always had consensus as we recognized the strength. Was it what they brought to it, not what I described? Like a, I want to get in a second to the current situation, but I always – it always interested me what a difficult job that is to bring people together um, who have all these disparate interests. Uh, so was uh, being the the youngest with uh, all those brothers or mother well, of five, which of which was better experience in in, uh, in dealing with the uh, well Congress? both. I think having five brothers and being around boys and sports and all of that made me when I went to Congress there were only. 23 women in Congress out of 435 when I went to Congress. 23 in the House, two in the Senate, Mm -hmm. so 25 altogether. But in our House, out of 435, 23 women, and that's like very few. And um, (laughs) I'm proud to say that through our efforts and decisions, we have um, increased our number by fivefold. But you didn't then, and you had a lot of alpha characters. Yeah, so, but I was used to, you know, I was used to uh, being around. boys (laughs) boys <laughs> and men <laughs> and so it didn't it's an, a turf an ego or this or that it, it, it didn't, didn't bother, bother you that. no I, I could roll with that you know just that's interesting that's your issue but i have mine so my observation having worked there for a couple of years in the white house was like i knew when i got summoned over there by you that it was often for a ritual lashing that your caucus right. was mad <laughs> you needed to show them that you weren't going to let you were going to let the white house know how you felt right and it seemed to me like you were always like you had the senate was one group that you were always pushing off of the white house was another right. all as a part of getting your caucus to where you thought they needed to go well as i said we built consensus and so it wasn't as if we deigned to say this is the path we're on it was this is our challenge. This is the urgency for the American people. These are the proposals that are coming forth. This is the opportunity we have, especially when well, we worked with President Bush too, George W. Bush, but especially when we had a Democratic president, while well, we could really accomplish so much more. So um, the one thing that I think people really don't know about our caucus is the reason we were able to get the consensus we had and the reason it was important for us to convey our dismay, shall we say, with whether it was the Senate or the White House, was our members were very unified around the issue of economic fairness. Where there might have been regional differences on guns or choice or this or that, not that they're very, very important. But we knew they were not going over to the other side because of economic fairness. And that drove us. And the whole idea that, that is still the issue, and I think in this campaign, is it's either trickle-down economics, which is just give it all to the wealthy, and if it trickles down, 
That would be good. If it doesn't, so be it. That's the free market versus middle class economics, which says we have to invest uh, to keep our middle class strong. We're a consumer economy. We have to have consumer confidence. And so if you have that. I'm sympathetic to this. No, but but if that's your, if you you have defined yourself that way, then everything else flows from that. Yeah. But it doesn't always flow. Sometimes it has to be, you have to work it. And like, I, I, I can say to you, uh, and I, I always want to thank you for it. I don't think we would have the Affordable Care Act, but for what you did. Okay. I mean, because after Ted Kennedy died, after the Senate went, and after it was clear that the Senate bill was the only bill that could pass, your caucus wasn't very happy. No, we didn't pass that. I mean, we passed you, it, but we you, amended, you amended it. it. But only, but you were limited in what you could do because there couldn't be another Senate vote. Well, they could be. They had to vote on our amendments. We had a commitment from them that we could we would amend it, and then they would vote on those amendments. And that's the only condition under which we would go forward because we thought the Senate bill was wasn't worth the trouble. Right, but. There were limitations because of what happened and because we lost the 60 votes there. And you had to bring your members along. Yeah, well, we didn't need 60 votes because we did it under reconciliation. Recon- so, those, those so we needed provisions. 51 votes. And that was limiting when right. you have to do it under reconciliation. Right. right. But, um, but I, point, I, I accept is- your compliment on behalf of the courage of my members <laughs> because we had a wide range. I myself, we, we had public option in the House. We should have had public action. In the bill that we had, that we could. It was impossible, and a lot of people didn't want to vote for it because it wasn't in there. Yeah. But you got them to do it. You persuaded them to do it. Well, in other words, what what are your choices? And it isn't isn't ever a question of saying this is a little bit better than the status quo. We aren't up for that. We aren't doing this to be a little bit incrementally better. This is about making a bold statement, doing the boldest possible measure that we could in order to meet the needs of the American people. It wasn't about politics. It's about but you got, policy. You got it done. And it's a contrast to what we see right now in the House. I was kind of amused. There was an op-ed in, the, in Fox today that says Republicans need a speaker who can change the terms of the debate and impose discipline on party members. Oddly enough, former Democratic Speaker Nancy Pelosi is the prototype. <laughs> so, like, here you are, Fox News. They've come around. They think you're... They no. think you're the, I, the I, prototype. I'm a legislator. I like. I love legislating, and when you're the speaker or the leader, you have to do just that. You have to uh, to lead, and you you don't dictate. You build consensus, and that was the I think the missed opportunity that they had over there. Now, speaker seems like a pretty good job, right? You you're you know you, a lot of prestige. You. You're in line for the presidency. How come nobody wants the job? Oh, they want it. They just don't have the votes. They want it. Everybody wants it. No, they just don't have the votes. When they say, oh, I don't know if I want why, it. Why can't they form consensus? Well, the um, President Washington cautioned against parties that were at war with their own government when he left office. And you can't have a party that is anti-governance, anti-science. Don't give me the evidence. I don't want the data. Don't document what the possibilities are because that's not what I'm interested in. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. We 
all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And now, back to the show. John Boehner is someone you've known for years and yes. years and years. And my sense was that you had a good relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have some sympathy for the situation he found himself in? I mean, do you, do you consider him a governing conservative <laughs> or a anti-government conservative? How can I say? 151 members of the Republican caucus at the end of September voted to keep, to shut government down, to not uh, pass the, the bill. 151, because people think, oh, it's 20 or 30. No, it's a big swath. 199 of them voted against the full faith and credit of the United States of America on our last vote. Only 28 of them voted. On the debt ceiling. So on the debt ceiling. So I think part of this, and I take this, some of it to the press, people have to know what is going on over there. Well, do you think Boehner hasn't shown enough gumption in standing up to some of that? Well, he gave up the gavel and rather than shutting down government. That was, I think, courageous. Uh, but if you really want to know, I mean, I don't know how long we have to I really want to know, but... Yeah, if you really want to know, here's what I said to him when he became speaker. I said, you know, there are times when your caucus will not want to go a place that you know we have to go for the country. I used as an example, when we uh, were uh, elected to the majority... We passed a bill to end the war in Iraq with a timetable. Went to President Bush, and he vetoed the bill. We couldn't override the veto. So, But the troops were still in the field. And the members were like, well, I'm not voting for funding for the war because that's the way we can end it. We're not going to vote for it. Well, they're in the field. They're in the field. It takes a while to get them back. And we didn't win that vote, but they're in the field. And we'll still continue to make that fight. But we have to fund the troops. You can't say I support the troops when it's easy. Right. You have to do it when it's hard, too. And so at the same time, we had to have a a, a bill for Katrina because we had an emergency funding need. So a domestic emergency, we had the to war. fund the, the troops, even though we weren't supporting the war. So what we did was we put everything on the floor. We said, you want to do domestic? They said, well, you're going to make me vote. If I want to support Katrina, I have to support the war. I said, no, you can support Katrina and the other domestic agenda. You can support, you can vote your hearts out against the war and those who can, not against the war, but against the funding of the troops. And then we'll have enough votes coming together to to support the troops. 
I hated doing that. I said, you don't have the faintest idea about a tough vote. I had hundreds of thousand people in the um, streets. I had impeach an impeach pact to impeach George Bush. You know, th- th- now we're talking heavy duty, <laughs> <laughs> but we couldn't leave the troops without funding now, could we? So, I mean, as much as I hated that war, I said when I was the top Democrat on intelligence when we voted on the, uh, the, the going into Iraq, and I said at the time, because I was part of something called a gang of four, the administration had to show me everything. So it's the top Democrat on that committee. And I said, this intelligence does not support the threat. The press said, you're calling the president a liar. I said, I'm not calling him a liar. I'm just stating a fact. Right. There is no evidence for the for right. whatever they're maintaining. Right. It was a lie. Right. And history. And so, but, but I knew that. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm a lot, overwhelmingly, our Democrats in the House voted against the war. Right. So it wasn't as if they could say to me, I, I had some fondness for this war. Right. But we had to do it. So what I said to him is, what you have to do is let them vote their hearts out. Don't ask them to vote against something they don't want to be for. Let them vote, but you will be able to put together a combination of votes by, that will get by, it done. So the Hastert rule has been an obstacle in that he can't rely well, on any yeah. Democratic votes or hasn't been able to. First of all, the Hastert rule isn't a rule. I just, uh, whatever you want to call it. That yeah. was a. And, the, and we should say that's the notion that you have to have a majority of the majority. You have to have a majority. You have to have a majority of the majority in order to bring something right. to the floor. They have even gone beyond that. They've even gone beyond that. You know, majority wouldn't be enough for them. But uh, but you you have to have you have to do your job. And if the job is to lift the full faith and credit of the United States of America, they would never have brought that to the floor. One hundred ninety nine versus twenty eight. On their side. So what are you saying about Boehner? What should what he I'm have saying, done? So we did do it one time. We did it on, um, now we've done it twice with the, uh, the continuing resolution. But they did it. We made it too hot to handle for them not to do it on um, the Violence Against Women Act. 600 days it was overdue. It had expired. Right. 600 days. So I said, and the, we, you have to take it to the public. And that's why I wish the press would be more cooperative. Well, I want to get back to Boehner, though, or whoever takes well, so, that okay, job. How so, do you control so this? So he brought it He brought it to the floor. They could vote their hearts out on a bill that said we're against violence against women unless you're an immigrant, a Native American, or an LGBT woman. <laughs> they voted for that. We voted for the actually bipartisan bill that had come from the Senate. So they didn't have to vote against anything they believed, and yet we were able to put together the votes uh, to pass the bill. He he should have done that more. Mm-hmm. He should have done that more. Just let them do be themselves, but also not give them. Can the anyone get elected uh, or get elected by that caucus who's willing to do that? Who says yes? I'm going to. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons why there's a little pressure been let off is because Boehner now is unbridled, and he feels like he can work with you and get Democratic votes for some of the things that you guys want to get done in the next. A uh, few weeks. Can somebody well, get elected over there who's willing to do that? To. I mean, they're going to have to. work with Democrats? Well, they're going to have to because we have serious deadlines. The end of this month is the, the there is no more uh, highway trust fight. It's over. The end of October. We have to have a transportation bill in two weeks. By the 3rd of November, we've run out of money, the full faith and credit of the That's United true. States of America, for initiatives that they voted for, but now they don't want to pay for. 
uh, by the December 11th, will it have government open or closed? So we have matter of Are you days confident that, we, that these things will get done? They have to. They have to, and that's why— Do you think Boehner uh, is, con- is confident and is willing to get these things done? Well, do a few. One of them is the uh, Exim Bank, which is a real job issue for, for us. We we had a maneuver the other day that was successful. What about the debt ceiling? The debt ceiling is a moral obligation of the United States of America, uh, and I think that will happen. You do think it'll yeah. happen? And what will happen is that um, they will try again to unseat him. Mm-hmm. You know, you know this isn't just you're leaving by the end of August, October. So, But ultimately, the Speaker of the House serves— at the pleasure of the whole House. So if there were a vote in the entire House, would all the Republicans walk away from him? I don't think so. No, and, I think And would he, Democrats support him if, if it was over the issue of the debt ceiling? Now, my saying that would get him in trouble in his caucus now, wouldn't it? But the full faith and credit of the United States of America would be upheld. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So in any event, I think that they could have done more to just say, this is what we have to do. And we did do some things working together. But they have a caucus that is anti-governance. The issue of government and how much is as old as our country, and that's a legitimate debate. But anti-governance, shut down government, hooray, they cheer. How could that be when you run for public office? So I, I, I think that the... Um, while the the number is not 100% of them anti-governance, almost every one of them has been an enabler of that attitude. Do you think that will change after all of this? Is there, is, are we coming up to a confrontation? Oh, we have, a, we have a, an election that will make the difference. But the President Lincoln, I quoted Washington to start, President Lincoln said, public sentiment is everything. With it, you can accomplish it. Almost everything without it, nothing. But and you know, that's some of these guys are, come from districts where you actually get rewarded for where there's, there's a strong anti-government sentiment and they get rewarded for that. Well, the, the, yeah, but do they not want a, an infrastructure bill? Do they not want jobs? The, um, some of the districts are very anti-immigration. They're anti-choice. Yeah, and, and but that's not. That's not most of the Republican districts. No, I, I completely agree with you. Many of them are a complete reflection of their graying districts. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Let's end where we started. Your family was very much from the Roosevelt era, political lineage. Uh-huh. I think I think I read one of your brothers was actually named after Franklin yep. Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt, Alessandro. <laughs> and uh, nice blending of backgrounds. Talk about melting pots. But when you look back at your time in Congress, yeah. what what are the things that in that tradition? Do you feel that you've been involved in that? That will be remembered in the way that. Well, the, my um, my own inspiration was John F. Kennedy, of course. That's when I was. You met school. him, right? You met a number of times. Mm-hmm. And what Pictures was that like? Very exciting. He was so 
inspirational, you know, his, speak, his speeches. That's how my interest started, too. As a five-year-old boy, he came to my little Stuyvesant town in New York, and that was it. That's what got me hooked. That's, well, he was something very special. Yeah. And his policies were very much, uh, while they had the new frontier, it was the New Deal. It, it, it built on, on all of that. And then when you see Lyndon Johnson and, and the Great Society, look at the things that they did between those, between Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, continuing the work of John F. Kennedy. Social Security, what a great name. Social Security, lifting people out of poverty. Medic, now we come up to Johnson. Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, all of these initiatives to lift people up. That is what the tradition I was raised in. And now we have the 50th anniversary of many of those things, including other expansions of freedom, whether it's the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the rest of that. So uh, our country uh, our country is a different place because of the New Deal and that. You've been a partner with this president, uh, the yeah. president I worked for, Obama. How will he be remembered by history? I think he'll be remembered as a great president. He did really great things, uh, and uh, the, the one thing I would say, and, and I may write a book about this, is I don't. I think he projected his goodness and his decency onto other factors in the governmental process. <laughs> the Republicans. You think he's too trusting of the Republicans? Well, not too trusting, but he figured if you have a good idea, and and he was always asking for theirs. He was always asking for their, how can we work together? What are your priorities? But they really, they they did not give him the respect he deserved. I think that he always wanted to be very bipartisan, which is a very good thing, and the public values that. But he had to really take it more to the public to say, this is why some things aren't happening. They just won't cooperate. But that is not who he is. Here's my uh, I know we have to run for a program at the Institute of Politics, but um, I want to uh, ask you about your own plans. Uh, you know, you've you stayed. Some people felt you stayed longer than you actually wanted to uh, because you felt it was your obligation to do so. Well, my members asked me to. Right. But they'd ask <laughs> you to do that in perpetuity. Um, I know you've got big you've got a large family, yeah, grandchildren, kids, grandchildren. Um, are you going to. Uh, are you? How long are you going to do this? I don't know. I have, I mean, as I said, I'm not on a timetable. I'm on a crusade, and we have some uh, more work to do. And I, um, I, I'm really optimistic about this next election. I think that it, so much is at stake. The urgency of it is very clear. And the I'm sad about what's happening on the Republican side because that's just not constructive. But the one good part of it is the public sees what we've been up against for a long time, where there's just an anti-government attitude that does not do, enable. Do you think you might stay to work with the next uh, Democratic president, if there is a Democratic president? Yeah, there will be a Democratic president. This is an election so, yeah, you might about stay. America. Yeah, mm -hmm. this is an election about America. I mean, I, I'm not making my plans right here and now. We'll see how it goes. But I, let's not exclude it, shall we say. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about America. It's not about Democrats or Republicans. It's about our country, about our country, about the middle class. And that's what uh, the president said it so beautifully at the White House the other day. He said the middle class has a union label on it. They're trying to undermine 
uh, co- right to collective bargaining and uh, organizing, undermine uh, women, undermine environmental movements, so, all of that. So the fight goes on for you. The fight goes on. But I think it's a, a fight that the public is much more aware of now because they see what is, what is the principle that is dividing the Republican Party. This is not the Republican Party, the grand old party that did so many things, so many great things for our country. We want the Republican Party to be a strong party. But this is a hijacked political party that is uh, taking the party over the edge and trying to drag the country with it. And they're leaving the middle wide open for us. And that's where I think we have to go with our message, as progressive as a Democrat as I am, to take it to a place where we build the most consensus uh, for the good of the American people, middle class, consumer, economics, to turn the economy around. Because what the president did, he, his his accomplishments are remarkable. They all haven't hit home for many people in our country. We have to show them why. Thank and you how. so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.